Matt, this is Acts 6, 1 through 7, the sermon for tomorrow. Um, I should know the date, but August uh, 23rd. I'm reading a lot these days about the characteristics of healthy churches and how the church is changing and all that good stuff. As you might imagine, there's a flood of people uh, talking about what the church will look like in a year and what churches are going to thrive and, and all that. Uh, I've read posts and podcasts about digital ministry and micro churches and empowering Gen Z and all these things uh, uh, are very helpful. Um, but if you ask a devout first century Christian to list the characteristics of a healthy church, what he or she thought, marked a church that was pleasing to God, you might be surprised that the list might look a little different than ours. And at the top of the list would be, uh, we care for widows. Uh, we care for widows. That was one of the, the main ministries of uh, the early church. Uh, and that's because it was something God commanded Israel to do, and the church saw herself as the new Israel. Um, let me give you a couple of scriptures to just show you how thoroughly uh, saturated this this vision of caring for the widow was and and remember in, in that day and time a widow was a very vulnerable person because in the culture of the day if the husband died it left the widow with very little um, social support deuteronomy fourteen twenty eight tells israel to set aside a tithe every third year for the refugee the levite the fatherless and the widow and um, notice it doesn't just say the, the Hebrew widow. This is any widow in the midst of the community. Isaiah 1, 17, uh, God says, True religion corrects oppression, brings justice to the fatherless, and pleads the widow's cause. Isaiah 10, 2, God pronounces a curse on anyone who takes advantage of a widow. Jeremiah 7, 2, God promises to bless Israel if you do not oppress the refugee, the fatherless, or the widow. Ezekiel 22, verse 7, uh, God rebukes Israel for not offering hospitality to the widow. Every one of you has been bent on shedding blood. The fatherless and widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things. Malachi 3, 5. God says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. Psalm 68, 5, God is a father to the fatherless and protector of widows. You see the same thing picked up in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5, 3, honor widows. James 1, 27, religion pure and undefiled is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself stained, unstained from the world. And again, it, it's really important. This is not just widows in the church or in the, the spiritual family. Uh, it really is about widows, which are kind of a symbol for the vulnerable anywhere, uh, from any faith or any community. And the, the book in the Bible that illustrates that the most is the book of Ruth, Ruth was a widow. She was from Moab. She's called a Moabitess. Um, and they were Israel's enemy. And yet in the book of Ruth, uh, this value of caring for the widow, the vulnerable, by the community is 
um, told throughout the story of the Book of Ruth, where Boaz welcomes her in and she becomes a, a part of the community of Israel. So uh, the Jerusalem church, and Acts 1-6 to is uh, about the startup of the Jerusalem church, uh, was led by godly Jewish Christians who knew their scriptures very well, and they made a priority for caring for widows. It, it seems to have been one of the main things that they did, and church historians tell us that it's, it's one of the main reasons that the church grew was because they did such a good job of caring for this, um, this part of their community. And, but growth has its problems, right? And so as the church grows, the needs of the widows uh, overwhelm the church's organizational structures. And that's kind of where we pick up the action in um, verse 1 of Acts 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. A little bit of background here. Hellenist Jews spoke Greek. They came from all over the empire. Hebrew Jews were from the Palestinian region. They spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic. And there was tension between the two groups for a couple of reasons. Greek-speaking Jews had spent their whole uh, lives in cities far from Jerusalem, far from the temple, and they tended to be more progressive, um, more open to um, Greek culture than the more traditional-minded Jews that had stayed home and lived in, um, in Jerusalem. Uh, now, nearly two centuries earlier, there was a, a big civil war called the Maccabean Revolt, where the more traditional or conservative Jews um, purged the, the Jews that were seen to be too influenced by Greek values. So um, there's a tension that's been simmering in the community for, for years. Um, now, a lot of uh, Greek Jews would come to Jerusalem at the end of their life to retire. And in that day, often the, the man would be much older than the woman. And so they brought with them many, many um, uh, soon-to-be widows. And so one of the things that seems to have been happening is all these Greek-speaking Jews were coming back to Jerusalem uh, and dying and um, sort of flooding the, the city with, uh, with widows. And apparently some of the Hebrew Jews uh, kind of resented it. And, um, and then scholars also tell us that there probably was some just normal sociological tensions. Uh, these people were ethnically very different, culturally very different. Uh, they would have worshipped in different churches, house churches. They would have lived in different neighborhoods. And this tension uh, between the people who've been there a long time and the newcomer when there are scarce resources certainly was a part of this as well. And so what's significant about this is this, again, could have been um, the first church split. You could have just had two wildly different churches, a Greek church and a Hebrew church, and the, the future of the church would have been very different. But that isn't what what happens and if you're walking along with me through this it's really amazing how the church solves problems under the inspiration of the spirit in a way that honors god and um, provides unity for the sake of mission and we we see this uh, happen again in this story it's it's pretty pretty remarkable um the first thing that that we see is that when they when they come the Hebrew leaders listen to them. Um, they, they take their complaint seriously. Uh, they don't just ignore them or say, 
you know, look at all we've done for you, or uh, why don't you go back to where you came from? Uh, the leaders of the church take the complaint very seriously, and they they listen. And I do think that's an important principle for us, uh, that whenever anybody um, comes to us and says, hey, I feel kind of neglected, or I don't feel like I'm being treated fairly, um, whatever the situation, we need to listen, to take it seriously, not to be defensive and um, shut down. But listening alone is not enough. Enough. We need solutions, too. And, and look at how they solved the problem. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the Jerusalem startup is maturing. The apostles know their mission. Uh, they are to focus on sharing the gospel and, and prayer. But they also care about the Greek widows, and so they, they start a new ministry, a new program, as it were. Um, eventually, this ministry will be called deacons. Um, the Greek word means to serve. Uh, a team of gifted, godly leaders uh, with administrative gifts who care for the growing number of widows in the church. Um, the first uh, letter to Timothy talks a little bit about this. And remember, Timothy's written about a generation later than the events we're reading about in Acts. And, and what you see is that there, there are two leadership groups in the New Testament church by the time you get to the you know, late first century. The first, 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, and then he Paul goes on and describes that office, that leadership office. And so there's a leadership board that takes care of the spiritual pastoral oversight of the church, the direction, the vision of the church. And then he says in verse 8, deacons also must likewise be, and then he gives qualifications for deacons and, and later deaconesses. So deacons are a separate organization, a separate uh, leadership team, that meet the physical needs of the church. And in, in post-New Testament times, deacon ministry became very important and uh, remained very important, uh, well, in many churches until today. Um, and, and they were actually uh, ordained and with the laying out of hands based on the passage that we're reading today. Now, many Protestant churches have kind of let the deacon role go over the years, or uh, maybe just become something where somebody hands out bulletins. But uh, in the Orthodox, uh, the Roman Catholic, and the Anglican churches, the deacon office remains very, very important. Um, a friend of mine uh, trained three years to be ordained a deacon. Um, they had an enormous ordination service, lasted several hours. And I asked him, because every week he wears the vestments of, of the church and looks similar to the priest and is in the front. I said, why, why do you do that? And he said, the office of the deacon is always to remind the church to care for the poor. It's always to advocate for the poor. And that's why the deacons sit up front in our vestments. So the deacons are, were there in the beginning and in many churches are still there to advocate for the poor, to organize the resources of the church for the poor, for, for the widow, the vulnerable. Well, 
you know, I don't know what that will look like for us going forward, but here is a principle that, that we need to keep in mind when we move into our new neighborhood at 5th and Central. Central, We will need to change. I mean, that's what's happening here. There are new needs. And, and by the way, we don't know how many months we're into the life of the Jerusalem church. It doesn't share, say we could be up even as much as a couple of years at this point. And as the church grows and more needs come in, uh, they change. They change their organizational structure. They adapt new needs to, um, or new new methods to meet new needs. And we're going to have to do that. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about this fall and start to put together, uh, we're going to ask you to prayer walk. We'll probably start doing that through small groups, but uh, the other ways that we can get out there and do that as well, try to find a, a place where we can all share what we're hearing online as we prayer walk the neighborhood. But uh, one of the reasons for that is we've got to organize around the new needs of this community. And one of the things you'll notice is that there are a lot of widows who live at least temporarily at the uh, at the shelters. And uh, obviously we don't want to do the work of the shelters, but um, I, I'm convinced God will have us take that very seriously. And the organizational structures that served us at Full Market Square uh, where we were kind of um, low imprint and people didn't know we were there will be very different when we are kind of right there in the in the mission districts. And so we're going to have to change. There are going to be some things that we stop doing and some things that we start doing. Uh, and especially we're going to need to identify and empower gifted administrators and organizational leaders. We we need those kind of leaders now more than uh, any time that we ever have. Um Let's notice, too, that this is a picture of the church that Luke paints where people are working out of their giftings and their callings, not just out of need or guilt. The, the apostles are doing what they're supposed to do. They're sharing the word. Uh, the administrators are administrating. The organizers are organizing. And I, I think as we move into our new facility, there's a, another level of that that we need to step into, another level of maturity where we're leading out of giftedness um, and staying in our lanes, doing what we're uniquely called to do. I think that's just part of how a church matures. And I especially think it's a time for administrators and organizational leaders. Um, you, you're probably so used to that gift that you don't even realize it's a gift. Believe me, if, if that's not your primary gift, like with me, you realize it when you see it. And I know we in the church don't do a great job of celebrating that gift, but, or those gifts, but they're extremely valuable. Um, so if even as you're listening to this, you're kind of feeling a little bit of heat, a little bit of a quickening in your heart, be praying about uh, if you have administrative or organizational gifts, serving gifts, helps gifts, um, how you might uh, be using those in, in our new ministry place. Um, Let's look at the next part. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicolaus, and uh, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, one of the things that you you can notice if you dig into this a little bit is that these are all Greek names. Um, and so the leadership team identifies and empowers leaders 
from the Greek community to serve the Greek community. They were probably house church leaders uh, in the Greek-speaking church. And so the Hebrew leaders don't just kind of put a token Greek on the team. They empower the people with the need to meet the need. And I think that's another valuable leadership principle. The community with the problem usually knows best how to solve the problem. The people who come to the leadership with the problem need to be part of the solution to the problem. And that that just strikes me as very, very healthy. There's not kind of uh, uh, consumers here that are coming and saying, we need, we need, we need. They're coming and voicing needs and then solving the problem themselves. And I think that's a healthy way to think about life in a church is whenever you see a problem, consider how you might be uh, the solution to that problem. And evidently this works. Um, Acts 6 verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. So the startup has pivoted, the young church has matured, the mission carries on, uh, and, and again, they've kind of gone through another crisis, another problem, another obstacle, but in such a way that they, that they move forward. And there's so much in this passage, it's so rich, um, I, I just wanted to take a moment and just share a couple of final thoughts as, as we go through this, um, in no particular order, and if you're talking about this with your small group or something, you might kind of see what just kind of strikes you. But the first thing that strikes me is, uh, friends, we need to share the gospel. Uh, at the core of the church is this mandate to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, more than ever, people need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, not in any kind of a domineering or disrespectful way, but they need to hear the hope that is within you. That's the core of the church and the apostles work hard to protect that. They could have easily just become be they could have easily become kind of just a social service agency and just cared for um, the widows, but they didn't. They wanted to preserve that ministry of the gospel. You know, I was reading something uh, earlier this week uh, predicting that uh, a year from now, one of the main changes in the church is that. Uh, churches will return to growth by conversion. Because what's happened really over the last three decades has been people have just moved around from church to church. Um, But we may be going into a season where people are are, are really eager for uh, learning more about Christ, following Christ in fresh ways. Um, So evangelism uh, matters. We also need to care for widows. We need to care for the vulnerable, both in our church and in our neighborhood. You know, do you see how both are there? Um, they're both they're both part of the gospel. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, I was moving out of my office uh, yesterday, and very thankful for uh, uh, the, the good folks that have stepped forward professionally in our church to help us do that, to help you dwell folks and Scott Branson's company and volunteering their services, just incredible. It's kind of a sad day, and um, on, on the one hand, I thought of the many, many blessings that have happened in that building, in that space, and square room, and office, and fellows, and all that, and a lot of fun up there, so a lot of good memories. You know, one of the things that I was left thinking, though, was, I wonder if any of our neighbors will notice that we're gone. 
Um, I, uh, I, I wonder if, if we've made an, much of an impact on our little Market Square neighborhood there. I think we've made a big impact as we as individuals have gone out into the community and lived a beautiful life, but uh, I'm not sure if we as a church have made um, as much of an impact as, as maybe we could have. And maybe that was just what we were doing for the season. But um, because I, I really do believe that we sought the peace of the city by going out into the city and serving and less so by kind of the programs we ran in the space because we couldn't do much of that. But in this new day, um, I think something's shifting. Not that we need to have a lot of programs, but we need to care for widows. Um, we need to care for the vulnerable. And my hope is that... Um, the neighborhood will look at us as a vital part of the neighborhood that if for some reason we left, they'd be upset that we weren't there anymore because we had such an important contribution to our neighborhood. So if you go on those prayer walks, and you'll hear more about that soon, um, be asking, God, what might we do here um, that would make us really missed by our neighbors when we left? Third observation uh, we need to change. Uh, not that what we've been doing is bad, but th there is really no new normal. It's just new. And uh, we're going to have to let some things go and embrace some new things if we're really going to step into our calling in Fifth and Central. Fourth, we do need administrators and organizers and deacon-type leaders now more than ever before. And if that's you, get ready, be praying. Uh, it, it's your time. Five, we need to listen. We need to listen to anyone who voices a need, whether we agree with it or not. That's what godly leaders do. Six, we need to act. Um, just listening isn't enough. Listening must need lead to action and solutions. Seven, we need to release control. Um, I'm sure that the Greek speakers didn't solve the problem the same way that the Hebrew speakers did. Whenever you empower someone to solve a problem, you give up some control. And so as we go forward, that will be a part of our journey as well. People may step into leadership or lead ministries or things like that and might not do it exactly the way that we would do it, but that's, um, or that I would do it, and that's part of, part of growth. And last, this is a story about sharing power for the sake of mission. Um, and the reason why I say that is because sometimes in discussions about power or where there's a, a, a group who is uh, voicing need and a group who has the power, who's listening to the need, sometimes you get the feeling that it's a zero-sum game, that either group A has the power or group B has the power, or uh, you, know, you, you can have it or I can have it, but there's no way that we can share it. There's winners or losers. And what I think you see in this story is there is the giving away of power, but there's also the sharing of it and, and the end result is that the whole community grows and everybody is integrated uh, kind of organically uh, and unified for the sake of the mission, using their gifts and sharing power for the sake of the mission. And I think that's a very healthy way to think about the distribution of, of power in the church.